The History Show with Kieran Doyle on West Cork FM. I'm sure you're all looking forward to the second part of Faulkner McCarthy's fantastic lecture on JFK. In this section, he concentrates on the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and he ties together all the connections to his Roscarbery, Clonakilty and Woodfield connections. I have left in a little bit at the end where there were some fantastic questions from the audience, uh, which really contributed to the night in question. Faulkner, of course, deals with it with his usual humour and knowledge. So again, sit back and enjoy. As a complete aside, um, the great quiz question, who was the youngest president of the United States? And of course, the question should never be asked because there are two answers. JFK was the youngest person to be elected president at the age of 43, but Teddy Roosevelt was president at the age of 42 because he was the vice president um, when McKinley was shot. And under the American system, the vice president steps in. So um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was president when um, he was only 42. But JFK was the youngest person to be elected as president. And I wish somebody would clarify that once, because I've heard that asked at quiz at uh, table quizzes and the riots that uh, start um, when people give two different answers. Be that as it may, <coughs> JFK um, was president. And I'll skip, I have to really skip on because of time constraints to 1963. Um, he was already thinking, as you know, the, the American system, which is that I, I find absolutely daft. The president only lasts for four years, and it takes 12 months to elect him. Um, I mean, we're bad in this country, but we can still elect uh, a government and a president in 21 days. They take 12 months at it. So in November 1963, he was already thinking of the re-election. His vice president was Lyndon Johnson. Now, if ever you met a dodgy character, it's Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson was from Texas, which had only barely voted um, Democratic in the 1960 election. Only by a tiny number of votes did they get the majority. And in Dallas itself, they lost to the Republicans. Not surprising, considering that Texas was in the heart of the old Confederate um, America. So there was trouble in the Democratic Party in Texas. And a visit was arranged to, um, to Dallas um, for November. Plans for the visit were finalized in September, and the route of the presidential cavalcade was announced uh, in September, and the visit was planned for the 22nd of, no of November, as we all know. So, um, he arrives in as planned, and he's, he's being driven along Dealey Plaza. His vice president, Lyndon Johnson, is not in the car with him. He is safely two cars further back, and he's accompanied by John Connolly, the governor of Texas, and a number of shots are fired, and Kennedy is shot. And whatever way you look at it, it was the most sort of sensational event of the 20th century. I mean, it, it, it was just staggering for those of us who are old enough to remember it, and so on. It was just mind-boggling. So, first of all, the filming of it. It was captured live on, on film, not by one of the television um, companies, because Dealey Plaza wasn't considered to be an important part of the, uh, the, the route. But a gentleman called Abraham Zapruder, of Russian extraction, uh, who had a shop on Dealey Plaza, little did he realise that morning when he took out his movie camera 
that he was going to uh, take the most famous film footage in history. He um, stood on a four foot high concrete post um, with one of his workers helping him in case he'd topple over and he waited patiently and he started filming the moment that the presidential cavalcade came into view and he captured live in gory detail uh, the assassination and he was approached shortly afterwards I'm going to come to the conspiracy theory and so on in a minute he was approached afterwards by a, a press man who knew him who knew a policeman and he willingly handed over his camera and film and so on and it was developed and it showed the, the whole thing in, as I say in its, in its awful detail and the film clearly showed a woman across the road also with a movie camera but she was facing the opposite direction and her camera would have been focused on the famous grassy bank or grassy knoll as the Americans refer to it the most famous grassy knoll in the world and it would have been focused on that immediately after the shots were fired and Kennedy was shot an FBI man approached that woman and said uh, your film could be important and we'll give you back your, film, your camera in 10 days time she never saw the camera or the film ever again it was confiscated what happened it, who knows um, it's only part of the, of the suspicion of the whole thing 50 people who were on Dealey Plaza said that they thought a shot was fired from the grassy knoll the police only interviewed one of the 50 people so the conspiracy theory Kennedy is dead it, it, it's a half an hour before it's announced but he's dead instantly um, and Lyndon Johnson um, is sworn in as president immediately that's the American system and there is of course the fame have I got that picture? I have um, with Jackie Kennedy in her blood spattered dress at his side and he's sworn in as president immediately and Kennedy's body is brought back to Washington for burial so the conspiracy theory well what happens afterwards if it wasn't so sad and so tragic this would be like something out of Faulty Towers meets Keystone Cops um, um, Lee Harvey Oswald um, who definitely fired some shots with a rifle that he had in the Texas Book Depository 6th floor um, walks out of the building past everybody um, walks along the street and is stopped by a policeman um, uh, police officer Tippett um, J.D. Tippett and as soon as the police officer says stop Oswald produces a handgun from his pocket and shoots the policeman dead he then rushes off and with all the activity around and he's, he's, he obviously suspects that he's being watched or that he's being chased or that he might be caught he starts behaving suspiciously outside, outside a shoe shop and he's really looking in the window in a very suspicious manner and the young assistant in the shoe shop gets suspicious, follows him and Oswald walks into a theatre, doesn't pay for his ticket and walks, in, walks into the to, um, a cinema probably, not, not a theatre, a cinema uh, he's arrested immediately and he's charged with the murder of a police officer Tippett and six hours later he's charged with Kennedy's murder and he's questioned on and off for two days Kennedy was shot on a Friday and on the Sunday um, Oswald has been charged and is being moved to the prison um, uh, the county prison 
And if you just think about it, here he is, he has been charged with, he's the prime suspect, the only suspect in the most sensational murder of the 20th century. He's surrounded by police officers. And Jack Ruby, a nightclub owner, mafia member who runs a prostitution ring in Dallas that is known to the police and to everyone, walks in with a gun in his pocket, walks up to Oswald, and you'll see the picture, and takes a free shot and shoots him dead. And you'd have to ask yourself the question, how could that happen without police collusion? I mean, or else maybe the police are just incredibly incompetent. But that is what happened. And the police then take the view, well, the main suspect is shot. What do we need to do any real investigation for? And there's no proper investigation uh, done. They go through the formality of a few things. They find, foot, they find um, fingerprints in the room where um, Oswald's rifle is on the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository. And all but one of the fingerprints are identified as being staff members. So there's no great problem. The outstanding, the only um, fingerprint that isn't um, matched to an employee is only identified in 1998. And it is the fingerprint of an employee and a close friend of Lyndon Johnson. So, a man called Malcolm Wallace. Um, so, basically, Johnson um, had been linked with nothing ever being proved to no less than eight murders since the early 1950s of opponents and those that he had crossed or had crossed him. Um, the night before Kennedy's assassination, Johnson attended a party at the house of a man called Clint Murkison, who was an oil magnate, very important fellow. Jack Ruby was present at the same party. Also present was J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, and um, uh, uh, Clive Tolson, the deputy head of the FBI. Um, the relationship between Hoover and Tolson, who were the FBI director and deputy director, was a strange one. They were both single, they lived in the same house. And I have to be careful here in the politically correct era, I have nothing against um, homosexuality or anything. They were um, two practicing homosexuals who lived together and the Mafia had got compromising photographs of the two of them. So Hoover was in the situation where he could do nothing against the Mafia in Texas because they had the goods on him. Johnson had fallen out with Bobby Kennedy, who was the Attorney General, because Bobby Kennedy was the first Attorney General for years to tackle organised crime. And there was bad blood between them. Kennedy had let it be known that in the 1964 election he was not going to pick Johnson as his running mate, he was going to pick somebody else. So Johnson had a lot to lose. The very morning of the assassination, a commission of inquiry was taking place in Washington, and evidence was given of acceptance of bribes by Johnson. The fact that he was sworn in as president later that day, of course, meant that the commission and everything was forgotten about, and um, he got away with it. So. Um, what do you make of all of that? Well, um, I don't know if Johnson um, organised the assassination. I think it was probably a whole host of people who got together. Um, the, the CIA had, had their own difficulties with Kennedy on account of he um, pulling at the last minute the invasion um, in the Bay of Pigs in Cuba. And a lot of people had a lot of hidden agendas against Kennedy. 
Either way, um, it's hard to imagine that a complete idiot like uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, who had psychiatric problems and who had been constantly in trouble since he was a child, that he was the sole um, uh, person behind the murder. Uh, I don't think you could believe that for one moment. Later in life, I know you also have to be very suspicious of people who um, uh, become born-again Christians and who make confessions late in life, but a trusted aide of Johnson, a fellow called Billy, Billy Joe Estes, um, uh, insisted after Johnson had died that Johnson was behind the murder and that this man, Wallace, whose fingerprints were found in the sixth floor of the, of the Texas Book Depository, that he had actually fired the fatal shot from the grassy knoll and that that um, was captured on the film that the, that the lady had taken, the lady who never got her film or her camera back. Now, um, before I go on, I'm going to finish. That is all very heavy stuff, and I'm going to finish on a completely lighter note, but before I do, I want to double-check that I haven't forgotten something. What's our time? Okay. Um, I just want to double-check before I come. To, I'm going to finish on something quite light-hearted, which I, think, I hope you'll find interesting. I find it interesting anyway. Um, and um, it's this. It is generally assumed, most people believe the following four things. That Jackie Kennedy, at the age of 31, was the youngest ever First Lady in America. That when she gave birth to a baby boy in 1963, that that was the first time that a First Lady and serving President um, had, uh, became parents. It's generally believed that when she remarried in 1968, that she was the first former First Lady to remarry. And it's generally believed that she was the first American First Lady to be a fashion icon and to be a celebrity and all that sort of thing. All of those things are wrong. Now, if you go to the last photograph um, that I have, that's um, JFK and his wife, on, uh, Jackie, on their wedding day. Go to the very last photograph. Oh, sorry, just go, before I come to that lady, just go back to one. Just, yeah. That is the most photographed camera uh, in the history of mankind. That is the camera that Abraham Zapruder used to photograph the killing of JFK. I forgot to mention that his film footage, um, he was paid by Life magazine $125,000 for it in five installments of $25,000. And in fairness to Zapruder, he donated the first $25,000 to the widow of police officer um, Tippett. Um, that would be approximately $190,000 in today's terms. And Life magazine sold him back the copyright in the film for $1. And negotiations then took place with the American government as to ownership of the copyright in the film afterwards. And I know you won't believe this, long after Zapruder had died, his grandchildren negotiated a settlement on the value of the copyright. And they received, for the copyright in the film, $16 million. So, anyway, the last lady, um, very last one again. Now, I told you about all the things that people believe about um, Jackie and which are false. That is Frances Cleveland, the wife of Grover Cleveland, who was twice President of the United States in the 19th century. She was 21 when she became First Lady, and her story is a fascinating one. Um, her father was a lawyer, and you'd imagine that being a lawyer, that he might have a spark of sense, but he hadn't. He, his obsession in life, before motor cars were invented, 
apparently, um, if you wanted speed, it was racing with horses and carriages, and he was killed, and she was 11, racing with his horse and carriage against the mother idiot who had the same interest. Um, her father was in partnership in a law firm with Grover Cleveland, and Grover Cleveland was single and was incredibly close to uh, her family. And herself and her sister, um, they called him Uncle Cleve. They were very close, and he was very good to them, it has to be said. And anyway, he moved on and moved upwards in life, and he became president as a bachelor, uh, well into his 40s. And um, Frances, when she was 19, visited the White House with her mother one day. Nothing unusual in that, because the families were really close. And she told the president that she was, um, she was full of excitement that she was going to Europe for a year with her mother. And Grover Cleveland panicked. And after they left, he sat down in the Oval Office in the White House and he wrote a letter to Francis. So the romantics among you are going to be terribly disappointed. He wrote a letter asking if she would marry him. And she said, yeah, but you have to wait a year because I'm going to Europe with my mother. So she returned. And as soon as she turned 21, she was married. And it was the wedding of the century. Um, it, it, it took America by storm. They were obsessed with the idea of this pretty young woman um, marrying the president. And immediately after the wedding, they left for their honeymoon to what was supposed to be a secret destination by train. And the press, various members of the press, got together and they hired another train. And they followed them. And the following morning, when they woke up in the uh, um, closed holiday camp, because it wasn't open yet for the season, they looked out to find the place covered with newspaper reporters, some of whom were in the trees with binoculars and so on. Do you think that they were upset? Frances Cleveland was one of the most remarkable characters. She smiled, she went out, she met them all. Uh, Grover Cleveland read the telegrams that they had got uh, of congratulations to the press and they entertained the press um, with great friendship uh, and so on. Um, she had a child, a daughter, and the birth of that child was celebrated as another national event. Americans became obsessed with Frances Cleveland and she didn't let them down. She would think nothing of shaking hands with 5,000 people in a day. She met every commitment that she had to meet, and Grover Cleveland was obsessed with her and gave rise to all sorts of embarrassment because he thought nothing of giving her a hug in public, even at the most important of functions, where there'd be politicians and judges and God knows who else present. He was besotted with his wife. And um, he, as they say, took his eye off the political ball, and he lost the election, despite Francis' popularity. He actually, it was one of the few times when the, he got more votes, where he lost the election under that American system where they go by the number of um, uh, electoral college votes and all that sort of thing. Uh, they remained incredibly happy, incredibly popular. If Francis cut her hair, every woman in America would have to cut her hair. If Francis wore a red dress, red dresses were the fashion. If Francis wore a particular style of dress, that became the fashion. Her popularity knew no no bounds. And Americans were really sorry that she was out of the White House. So four years later, Grover Cleveland was re-elected, the only president ever to serve two non-consecutive terms. Uh, they ended up having six children, the last of which was born after 
he finished his second term. And Frances has a unique record, lots of records actually. She lived for 53 years after her term as First Lady. No other First Lady has lived that long after retiring. And they were blissfully happy. And Grover died in 1908, and five years later, when she was still only in her 40s and a relatively young, attractive woman, she remarried. So she beat Jackie um, um, Kennedy to that by about half a century, and she beat it to all the other records as well. So it's purely an item of trivia to throw in at the end of an awfully serious and depressing lecture. So I thought I'd throw it in for that. So thanks for listening. Thanks very much, Fatma. It wasn't dull, it wasn't serious, it was very, very well done. The story very well told, thanks, sir. So I'm glad to see we have uh, Fatma Hickey down here, who's uh, a relative, and welcome, Fatma. Um, so we take any questions there, not from any of the board, but there's any questions. I heard a few years back in the game of the I thought it was good then, but it was fantastic, so fair play to you. Have, uh, you probably got a lot of questions now, everything about Kennedy, but there was a film that came out there, I'd say, about 20 years ago, I think it was based, was it the Warren Commission? Yes. Um, do you have any knowledge of that? Was How fictitious was that, or was it close to the truth? Well, its findings have been. Um questioned and to be honest nobody really believes the findings of the um, Warren Commission. Um, Ryle Dwyer who is a noted historian who lived in Texas for um, nine years um, said that the findings really weren't up to much. He claimed in his nine years in Texas that he never met one person who didn't believe that Lyndon Johnson was behind Kennedy's murder and to this day the majority of Texans are convinced that Johnson was behind it so the Warren Commission really was a bit of a whitewash operation uh, I, that's, that's the general view I don't know for definite but I mean, that's the general view that the Warren Commission was a complete whitewash operation well, fact, uh, um, maybe I missed it uh, perhaps I would sleep and I even remember going to sleep but anyway, um, <laughs> most unlikely Michael it would have been half sleep as it was a brilliant um, but what I think that I may have missed, the Woodfield connection. Sorry, you're dead right. <laughs> <laughs> the very reason why I decided to give the lecture. <laughs> I thought I missed it too. Sorry about that. The Woodfield connection is very simple. Um, Mary Sheehy from Woodfield married um, her neighbour, um, I'll just get the names here, uh, a man called Field, um, in Ross Carberry. Um, there's a note of this. Father McGrath, who, uh, known to many of you, um, found in the Roscarby Parish records um, the wedding of, um, yeah, I have it here, um, 2nd of June 1825. Mary Sheehy and Patrick Field married. Now, Mary Sheehy was from Woodfield. Um, if the best way I can explain this, most of you are familiar with the area, and if you're not, I'm terribly sorry. If you start at Sam's Cross and you head towards Cuhan's Cross on the Clannacilty Demand Mare Road, about halfway along that road, there is a four crossroads where there used to be a school known as the Blue School. It was a Church of Ireland school. It's now a private house. 
To the right, just to the right of that, as you travel northwards, is the Sheehy homestead. The only person living there now is Eileen Sheehy, who is Eileen Hayes, that was. She married Patrick Sheehy, the last member of the Sheehy family to live there. And a couple of fields across the way was the home of the Fields, who uh, no longer live there. Um, that family, the house is gone, and the family have long since gone. Um, most of them in New Zealand. But one branch of the Field family survives. That is the family of John Field and Scabrine, known to all of you. So Mary Sheehy was the daughter of a Patrick Sheehy and a Joan McCarthy Quirk. That's an unusual, that double barrel surname. But actually, it, it, I've come across it a few times in West Cork, and as I'm greatly mistaken, and Mike, maybe you might even know, I believe that name, McCarthy Quirk, turns up in the ownership of Bushmount going back many, many years. So that is the Woodfield connection. So, um, and thank you for correcting me of, of all the things to leave out, but... Um, Anyway, so two, um, so um, one sixteenth of JFK's um, ancestry, uh, the, the exact same as Duncanstown relates to Woodfield, and one sixteenth relates to the adjoining townland of Corlee. Let me add, for the benefit of my many friends in Roscarbery, both Woodfield and Corlee are in the parish of Roscarbery. Uh, so Roscarbery has twice the attachment to JFK that Duncanstown has. What I congratulate to Fatman anymore is entertaining and informative lecture. Thank you. And uh, if I might take a small cure of my book, just to remind you that there is another indirect link this area with the Kennedy family. Yes. Uh, you probably already know it and may not answer it important enough to mention it. But anyway, I mention it. Um, Kathleen Kennedy, whom you stated, uh, married the Duke of Devonshire. Yes. And their ancestor home courses in uh, Chatham. Yes. And um, it is also the home of the Book of Lismore, also known as the Timothy Book, or the Book of the McCaffrey River. And uh, that was uh, written in Timothy Gabby around the 1490s by the monks there, and presented to Finney McCaffrey of Kilbritton Castle as a wedding present. That's right. It uh, was captured by uh, Lord Kilnamy, he bought his son, uh, uh, ancestor of the Devonshire and found its way down to Watford, where it was found walled up there uh, in a bad condition around the year 1810. And then fairness to the Devonshires, well, they took it to England with them and repaired it. And uh, I was to say that four or five years back, a number of us, and I know Marion was there and there several more, uh, we saw the book in person that you brought it over and had it on display in UCC. So that, uh, that is, I suppose you would call it another indirect link with the Kennedys. True. As you mentioned, as you mentioned that, I presume that the Duke you mentioned was Andrew, the fellow uh, who died in 2004. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is purely as an aside and to lighten the whole thing up. Uh, Andrew never got the award, but he should have got the award for the most honest politician in history. He, being uh, the influential, coming from the influ influential family, he did. Uh, he, he stood in a safe conservative seat and he was duly elected uh, many years ago and uh, he wasn't up to much as a politician but he was still appointed to a terribly important position by the Prime Minister Harold Macmillan who happened of course to be his uncle and he was confronted by a reporter one day who said um, I think this smacks of nepotism and uh, you might have thought that he'd reply by saying oh I'm 
very pleased to be given this honour and I'll do the best I can and so on and so forth. And his reply was, yeah, it's the worst example of nepotism I've ever come across. <laughs> <laughs> Very. His money. Uh, he had limitless resources, and um, he, in, in advertising and in promotion and so on, um, he invested hugely. Joe Kennedy was obsessed with one of his sons becoming president of the United States. He was a wildly ambitious man, um, man of very questionable morals and so on, but wildly ambitious. And he did. He invested fortunes into getting JFK elected. Fortunes. Oh yes, sorry, this is a lot of things I left out. I'm really sorry. This photograph is taken at the Vatican. Um, I mentioned that despite all his questionable morals and so on, JFK loved to portray himself as an absolute pillar of the Catholic Church. So when um, Pope Pius X was being invested, uh, or whatever you do when a Pope has been elected and he's uh, not crowned, but I'm, I'm sorry I'm stuck for the word. Anyway, the day that the, the, the Pope was becoming Pope, Kennedy took all of his family to Rome, and there's a great story. Um, they were allocated so many seats, um, but Joe, of course, brought more members of the family than was um, expected or than was invited, and they took the seat of a serving Italian minister who also happened to be Mussolini's nephew. And Mussolini's nephew stormed out, uh, and there would have been some scene, but for the fact that somebody else gave him the seat. And you see the little boy in the front of the photograph. That is Teddy, the youngest of the Kennedy family, who not that he did him any good, though, but he has the distinction of receiving his first communion from the Pope. 